pile, these are generally conversations between adults after the children have left the table. The language can be spicy and the subjects can get saucy. So if you're ready, you are listening to The Southern Fork, a podcast that hosts kitchen chats with some of the most interesting people in the culinary South. I'm your host, Stephanie Burt, and I'm always hungry to learn more. Let's dig in. The Southern Fork is supported by Curated Selections, based in Charleston, South Carolina, and distributors of fine wines from around the world. Curated takes a holistic view of vino for wine distribution. They sell sustainable wines made with integrity and a sense of place, and they command great value. Wines are selected by their certified sommelier panel, led by advanced sommelier Patrick Emerson. And actually, all employees are required to be certified psalms, including their warehouse and delivery team. The portfolio, simply put, rocks, with some of the coolest wines on the planet, including a wide selection of my summer fave, Rosé. For more information, please visit curatedselections.com. What you're about to hear is a little like sitting with Travis and I at the back of a bus. Giggles, tangents, and references to past escapades are all included. But that's what happens when we get together. Chef Travis Milton is a Southwest Virginia native who is about to open three, yes, you heard that right, three restaurants in Appalachia in the next year. He's been in Garden and Gone, The Washington Post, Tasting Table, cooked at the James Beard House, and through all of it, has championed his beloved home region and its cuisine. He is a chef's chef, including his tenures at WD-50 on the Lower East Side and Comfort in Richmond, Virginia. I give him that moniker because he's a cook who works from a theoretical place, and he expertly wields food as his language. A couple of notes about the following. The night he references in Charleston, he was the one living wild, and I was the DD. And secondly, I cannot wait to see what he does next. Let's get this party started. Welcome to the Southern Fork, Travis Milton. What was that radio name you were just telling me about? Milton the Albino Love Machine. Why Albino? Do you basically just burn in the sun? No. Uh, one of my little things is I, I'm constantly coming up with cool band names. Right. And right. one day I was like, man. A lot of me's and plus blank mind thinking. Sometimes. 100%, yes. yes. Uh, one day... I was trying to figure out a name for a punk band that I was trying to start. And I was like, let's go with Albino Love Machines. And they were like, a couple of buddies of mine, they're like, that should be your, your name on the show we're doing. Uh, but the name of the show was called Weed and T-Bones Happy Hour <laughs> featuring Milton the Albino Love Machine. That's and 
That's probably the best thing I've heard <laughs> in a couple weeks. This is when I was doing college radio. So when I trans when I transitioned into doing as an on air DJ professionally, they were not keen with the name. They were like, "The albino." Everyone's going to be really confused if you if you go to a remote <laughs> broadcaster and they're going to be like, "Where's the albino guy?" And, and you're totally not albino, uh, and that's probably offensive to albino people. Probably. <laughs> so. Uh, they were like, you've got to go with something a little easier. So I went with Uncle Milty. Which is also lovely. Yes, because uh-huh. you know, it's Milton Berle. Yes. And I, I One of the dirtiest comics funny. ever. He was dirty. He, he liked drag a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't dress in drag, but I love drag shows. I like drag shows as well. They're a lot I really of fun. like that. So did you, what was the show? Did you play a lot of Scorpions on the show? <laughs> <laughs> we played Wind of Change by the Scorpions almost every day. Um, I wonder why. So... The the college radio station that I was at it was the was originally a world radio show so they so they played like lots of like African beats mm-hmm. lots there was of, one out of Chapel of Hill chant like that. music it's very similar yes yeah it's very similar to that um, I always love that station but they had just transitioned out of it when I started working there so we had kind of a variety show but we had all of these all of these CDs there that we had no concept of we're like let's play number seven <laughs> so we found this one we found this one cd by this this guy called uh, his name was astor piazzola and he is a spanish uh i believe a violin virtuoso hmm. but there was a song on that record that was about 12 minutes long perfect amount of time <laughs> for us to go outside the building and have a cigarette in the middle of the show so we created this segment called the daily piece of aster <laughs> which we would play every time we had to go have a cigarette nice <clears throat> and there you have it deep into the mind of <laughs> chef milton here we are live from the lowe's hotel in atlanta georgia and travis and i are both here because uh we are participating in the atlanta food and wine festival Yes. I am covering it for uh, this little podcast called The Southern Fork. And you. I've heard of that. Yeah, I know. Isn't that cool how yeah, that is happening? The chick that does that, it's, she's pretty cool. Like, um, she drove me around Charleston really drunk one night. Fine. I'll pay you money, okay? <laughs> I will pay you money for saying that. So, Travis and I did um, have one major epic night in Charleston, South Whitney Carolina. Whitney Houston was there in spirit. <laughs> <laughs> She was. She was. And we actually texted for months or weeks about Whitney, I think. Uh, yes, Whitney that. and was it Smooth Criminal? Was the Michael Smooth Jackson Criminal. song? Smooth Criminal, yes. <laughs> yes. Which is the my favorite of, of the Michael Jacksons. Do you have a favorite? Of Michael? It's probably going like to be PYT. <gasps> I really love that bass line. Mm, it is good. Yes, it is good. Really, I really like remember the time too. Remember the time is pretty solid. Uh, you can tell what era I was really digging Michael though. I'm trying to. Uh, what's the the way you make me feel? Yeah. How do you read my mind? <laughs> <laughs> Have we talked about this before? No, we haven't. No, talked that about one this. is amazing. The way it you make is. me feel. Yeah. It's it so is. good. The That's... part where he's like, Achoo! like <laughs> he just makes up sounds and turns them into words. He does. I wish I could do that. And, well, you just did. No, that was his. I oh, saw that. All right. So, what do you listen to in the kitchen? Do you listen to music? Um, I do. Uh, I, if you've ever seen the movie High Fidelity, um, actually, I'll digress a tiny bit. I think for most of us as chefs, I think a lot of us, a lot of our, our brains, a lot of our hearts are 
very, very tied to music, and I think I think that translate a lot translates a lot to who we are creatively. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think a lot of us had that creative outlet when we were younger. And if I can just pause for a minute, mm-hmm. Glenn Roberts. Hey, Glenn, how's it going? Hi, Glenn. I really want some uh, uh, rice bran, but you won't give it to me. Oh, well, that's really between you and Glenn. But sure. but he was mentioning on when we were chatting for the podcast recently that um, that a lot of the same the people that are into cooking and the high level chefs are have a musical brain. A lot, yeah, a lot of, and we a lot of us played in bands. We had musical background. I was uh, talking to Greg Baker down there. You know, I, both of us, I think when we were younger, I think we we're both in, in a lot of different punk bands. And mm-hmm. uh, I know Stephen Satterfield did some like amazing <clears throat> indie indie rock stuff in the nineties, and uh, I, I know every chef I know loves and plays music in one fashion or the other. Uh, so I'm, I'm really multifaceted in my love of music. And it really kind of goes to the... It, it's more about the mood that I want to set in the kitchen or mm-hmm. that I need to set in the kitchen. If if my sous chef comes in one day and he's in kind of a crappy mood and mm-hmm. he's had a rough day, I'm going to end up playing Whitney Houston for two hours. I'm going to love the hell of it because I love Whitney Houston. Right. And he's going to... Calm down a little bit. Maybe, right. Uh, this is. Uh, I, I do want to dance with somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> You're gonna be get back on the line. Yeah, exactly. Or, <laughs> uh, or you know, I'll be, I'll be in a bad mood, and I'll walk in, and before anybody gets in there, I'll, I'll play, you know, Season of the Abyss, like the entire record by Slayer, and burn through that. But I, I just adore well-crafted music, and, mm-hmm. and I feel, a lot of people use that as a cop out when they go, oh, I'll listen to everything. I don't listen to everything. There's a lot of stuff I hate. If if anyone ever plays Fine Young Cannibals around me, I get almost to the point of physical violence because I despise Fine Young Cannibals so much. You know who I don't care for? Who? I'm going to reveal it here. Who? This is going to be the end of uh, our relationship. I do not believe that, unless you're going to say Whitney Houston. No. All you right, know well, my fine. love for Whitney. Okay, all right. R.E.M. I hate R.E.M. Yes! <laughs> I have never. I respect R. them, but I cannot no, stand I, to hear their voice. They are talented. They're wonderful. One, you'll never hear me say like a band sucks. You'll never. I'll, I'll never be like, man, that band sucks. Or that band's terrible. Because unless they truly aren't talented, but right. I don't feel I'm a very good judge of that because they're obviously better musicians than I am. Right. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> but I cannot like if it's on the radio, it has to go. Like I, I'm like, what? No. Fine Young Campbell's Jimmy Buffett, oh. Grateful Dead. I can't stand any of that. I I am an avid Grateful Dead hater. Every, a lot I'm, a lot of people will be angry at hearing that, but I think everyone has already heard that from me. Probably. I literally introduced myself as Hi, my name's Travis Nolan. I hate the Grateful Dead. Shall we talk? <laughs> <laughs> if you're not down, you can walk away. Now, do you have a kitchen to play music in right now? A professional kitchen to play music in? Right kind now? of. Um, I uh, while while building three restaurants. Yeah, we'll um, talk about that in just a minute. I'm basically going to have an intervention. It's probably not going to work. But. Uh, I shouldn't. I, you might be late on it, <laughs> <laughs> I think is, is mainly the case. Uh, but my business partners manage, uh, one of my business partners manages a uh, property in Withville, Virginia. It's a hotel situated in, in Appalachia. Withville is a very interesting little town. It's the the birthplace and home of Edith Bowling Wilson, uh, Woodrow Wilson's wife, who 
was essentially the the, the, the lady president when he fell into a coma mm-hmm. and was sick. She kind of secretly took over. That's if you ever watch Drunk History, it's like my favorite episode. Oh, God, Travis, <laughs> can yes. we just? I love Drunk History so much. <laughs> That's my favorite episode. It's it's got Courtney Cox in it. She does an amazing job as a yes. Billy Wilson. Um, I like the Harriet Tubman one. I, which uh, that one was pretty awesome. But I was racking my brain because I just remembered that Danny McBride was in an episode. And I was trying to remember which episode Danny Derek, McBride was. If Derek Waters, maybe we should date. Who's Derek Waters? He's the guy who creates Drunk History. Oh, that guy, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm usually drunk when I'm watching Drunk History. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm too into Drunk History. I feel like it actually no, turns no. into when I'm... Because my, my, my second favorite podcast to the Southern Fork is a podcast called The Dollop. I remember you talking about that. And The mm-hmm. Dollop is a bi-weekly American history podcast where it's one one comedian telling another comedian a story of just a crazy historical happening uh, in America that someone might not know about. But that's that's kind of, you know, that's yes. drunk, drunk history was something that really made me go... Oh. Okay, yeah, I kind of want to. I'll, I'll do a restaurant in Withville. I mean, obviously, it's it's part of it's it's in Central Appalachia, so it's something that is very, very much locationally a part of the vernacular that I try to work in. So let's just pause for a second. Okay. Drunk history helped you make the decision on a job. On a job. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But Central, that shouldn't come as that much of a surprise because you, you really. do know me. I know, I know, but I just think it's awesome. Because I totally get it. <laughs> oh, yeah. But Central Appalachia is is your heart. Uh, it is, 100%. Uh, heart's on my sleeve. My heart's at home. I, I, no, that might make sense. I don't know. Uh, everyone knows I've got the tattoos on my arm of Appalachian mm-hmm. heirlooms. If you know who I am. If not, you wouldn't even know I have tattoos. But it truly is like where my heart is. It's where, it's where I grew up. It's where I love. Uh, I feel very, very strongly that there's obviously a need for diversification and economic development there. And mm-hmm. I, I look at what your beautiful city of Charleston did long ago when Glenn Roberts and BJ Dennis and Sean Brock and Mike Lotta really kind of started this amazing movement of embracing a taste of a place in that town. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm leaving out some amazing chefs in that, but I, I really... I see what that's done for tourism, and I see what that's done for Charleston, and I think that a very similar thing can be done in Appalachia because no different from the low country, we have a very specific terroir, we have a very specific uh, group of, of foods that grow there and not really anywhere else and can be found there, and and it's not that dissimilar to South Carolina 10, 12, 15 years ago where when driving through South Carolina, you you couldn't necessarily get a a taste of what South Carolina is, and I mean that right. in a literal sense. Um, you're eating at Fuddruckers or somewhere on the way right. through. But now you can go through and you can taste the past, the present, the future mm-hmm. of food and even sociology and anthropology of just just the food, the people, the how and where we come from. You can literally see that story and taste it on a plate in Charleston and. I see, again, what that's done for tourism, and, and I feel like that could be done in Appalachia because there's, it was one of the, it was the first melting place of America. Right. Melting pot of America. Because um, it was the western edge 
of yeah, colonial America. Absolutely. And so that's where you could go. And if you were hard scrabble enough, no one cared what color you were, or what language you spoke. You had to you had to do mountainside farming just Everyone like everybody else. Real tough. Yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously, others more so than others, but but you did have that that first kind of of congregation and grouping together of of people from Slavic background, people from what everyone assumes is the predominant background of, of Scotch Irish, but you know, African, Native American, you've you've got that full melting pot. And the the craziest thing is that the terroir was pretty dissimilar to the terroir of most of those people. So there it's, right. it's it's like literally a new beginning. Right. The Scotch Irish, they they it was very similar to the, the terroir there mm-hmm. in the land. But for a lot of the a lot of the the cultures coming in, it was completely different, and they learned how to do their food and their what their interpretation of food or, or whatever right. they want based off of what grew there. The and, landscape and, really transformed the cuisine absolutely. quickly yep. in a way that it didn't like in a place like New York where you could mm-hmm. you could replicate in a lot of ways exactly. what you, you could come, you could come to the new world and you could obviously change it up a little bit mm-hmm. um, and but, you couldn't get everything but no but but you could you know you had you had these strong but if you if you look at it it was strong pocketed groups you know you've got you've got an italian portion of town you've got a jewish right. portion of town you've got you know you've got these you know these these immigrants are coming in they're settling in kind of their own little neighborhood little neighborhood and, yeah. and they're they're together but when you look at what the way appalachia was settled it was everyone was kind of thrust it was isolation. If you've ever lived there, you yes know no. that, well... Isolation, I, I actually... Small groups. I fight the isolation you conversation do. a lot. But I, I felt so isolated when I lived there. Maybe because I'm a city girl. Probably. I think that's why. Yeah. And, I, I, and as I tell people, that black pepper. Mm-hmm. So black pepper is a huge part of the Appalachian palate. Mm-hmm. Black pepper has nothing to do, doesn't grow there. Where was it introduced? If we right. were so isolated, we would never have had this huge important thing. Right, that's, that's a, a good a part point, of our, our flavor. You know, people people see and and think and and I'm not gonna lie, there is a degree of isolation there. There are people that shut themselves off. There are those stories of don't come on my land. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. There was a video other. game like that. <laughs> Get off my land. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't. I don't. It's. I think it's a stereotype that was that's been perpetuated by the fact that. City um, girls like me go and go, whoa, this is, no one is here. Kind of. That's kind of the yeah. start of that story because yeah. we, we as Appalachians have never had control of how our story is told. Our story has always been told from the perspective of the New York Times or the Washington Post. Everyone telling us why we're in the predicament we're in, how we should fix it, how we screwed up, why we screw up. It's, it's never been. That it is a predicament. It is. You know, it's a hundred percent. It's a predicament, and that's yeah. where I come back to the point that I was probably making about twenty minutes ago: <laughs> the diversification of economic development mm-hmm. um, and capitalizing off of something that is truly ours and truly is steeped in our story, and that's the food of Appalachia. And you don't see it anywhere else. We have the opportunity to say, "This is us. This is why this is us. This is where right. we come from." The good parts, the bad parts, just just with all the other regions of the South, looking at it and owning where we're at and and using it to capitalize, bring people there. Culinary tourism is a huge thing now. Right, right. Well, if we talk about food as a language, and then to really, I've mentioned this before, and I don't (laughs) think 
you chagrined at it too bad. There, there are chefs that cook as a aspirational or they cook based on a, they, they have different languages. Yours comes from a place of memory and, and set and terroir. Mm -hmm. So how do you take these two disparate things? Cause terroir is by its nature modern Absolutely. because it's seasonal mm -hmm. every year. So then you get crops, you get revived crops, you get new things being grown, something's different the year before. And then you have this idea of what your palate as an Appalachian native says is Appalachia. How do you modernize or interpret that as a creative person interpreting food language? Is that long enough of a story to explain? You can go more. <laughs> um, I think my initial portion of the answer is uh, Appalachia is is we're we're, we're storytellers. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's a huge portion of our culture and who we are. And some people it's it's verbal. Some people it's written. Some people it's through you know the amazing bluegrass music that's come out of 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 that region for so long. Um, and you know for some of us it is it's through our food it's it's through mm -hmm. certain creative things and one of the one of the biggest i hate the word authentic i hate the word authenticity authenticity is a static unchanging right moment in time you get it's to a, measure against it and you either pass or fail it's a picture that doesn't move doesn't change right. I, I, and appalachian food is not that when you look at appalachian food and you look at why the food is what it is. You, you look at, you look at a lot of different things. You look at economic circumstances, you look at, you know, the subsistence mm -hmm. that comes from that. You look at, at seasonality, you know, we're, we're the, we're the only portion of the South that experiences all seeds, all of the seasons that is true. to right. that, to, to the full extent. Mm -hmm. Um, you look at, uh, you know, obviously There's a ballet the, the soil, about the things yeah, there is mm -hmm. actually, um, so when you take all those things into account, you're you're in a situation where you you have to be creative, especially with the subsistence thrown in there. When um, when you want to make apple butter and you can't afford to go get some cinnamon, and, and there's not any there's cinnamon because somebody didn't that. come up the mountain with it. Exactly. What are you gonna do? You're gonna throw a ten cent candy in there, mm -hmm. a red hot. Which someone wrote a really awesome article about that. Thank you. Well, oh, it was you? <clears throat> it was me. Oh, it was me. Was it's not cooler. quite out yet, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite out. All right. It's coming out soon for the Southern Foodways Alliance. So, so. Are, you, are you like dropping it like like a, a hip hop artist? You're just gonna be like like yeah tomorrow like yeah that's me. red hot article dropping. Yeah. Because people are sitting by with bated breath going, where and what is she writing next? Well, that's what he's doing right now. <laughs> no one can see, but I'm pointing to a guy that's sitting on the bed in the corner of the room at work. <laughs> but you're trying to do that as a modern creative person. So how do you put your – how do you inject yourself into all of that big theory? Well, that's – when I look at – where Appalachian food is and where it's come from. I, I feel like it's, it's a series of stories. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I look at, I like that. Who showed, who showed me how to do X, whatever dish. Um, you know, when I, when I look at apple, apple stack cake, for instance, which is purely, 
and probably the thing most people are more familiar with in Appalachian food than mm-hmm. anything else. Mm-hmm. And, and that's with the dried apples. Sometimes. Correct? Sometimes fresh. No, it's sometimes it's apple butter, sometimes it's preserved, sometimes oh. it's, it's, it's a lot of different things. So, um, oddly enough, last year at this Atlanta Food and Wine Festival, um, they asked me to do an apple stack cake, and Kevin Gillespie had done it the year before. So they were like, we would love for you to do you know, your own spin on it. And I was like, hell no. I don't want to do a freaking spin on apple stack. Like, it's perfect as is. Mm-hmm. And they were like, no, you got to do something different with it. So what I started looking at, I started, I started pouring over my brain, like, how do I make a spin on this, and how do I feel comfortable with it? And I started looking at all the recipes from my grandmother's and my mom mm-hmm. of these apple stack cakes and realized that all of them are a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And they're all different based off of where they were living at in Appalachia, what their economic circumstances were, what they had access to, what they were growing, and who they were as a person. And apple stack cakes, obviously, layers. It's stacked. So I usually do mine about six layers. Mm-hmm. I decided that I was going to look and take each one of those recipes, and they are going to become a layer of the cake. Ah, oh, like a wedding cake so, that has the different flavors, kind of. More like my family tree. Ah. Oh. This layer is my grandma Wheatley. This layer is my, my grandma Pauline Richards. This layer is my mother. This layer is dedicated to the apples my great-grandfather Wheatley grew. And then the top layer is my contribution. So you end up with this very interesting cake comprised of a lot of similar stories that are building to something that's greater than I love it. each yeah. layer. And that's about the best answer I can give to that. It's it's literally, what can I add to the story? I'm not trying to make the story. Mm-hmm. The story is already there. Like, You're not trying to fence in the story. Nope. What's my... Which I think a lot of chefs, a lot of chefs in, earlier in their career would be like, how do I encompass this? Yes. Because that's, that's an attractive thing. Like. Yes. How do I make it my own? How do I... It's it's not yours. It's not, nece- it's, it's not necessarily your story to tell. It's how do you factor into the story? What can right. you add to it? Honor the right. story before. And now Don't take. It. And now what tell... What was your top layer? So my top layer, it's a cake uh, made with some amazing sorghum uh, that I get from Greenville, Tennessee. Lots of ginger, uh, lots of cardamom, sorghum flour instead of regular flour, a little bit of a ground chinkapin mm-hmm. for some texture. Mm-hmm. And then the top is an apple butter that is kind of a, again, a culmination of all the different apple butters that my family have made with my uh, kind of spin on it, I guess. Uh, so it's there's whiskey in it because it's me. Because <laughs> it's you. <laughs> and there's whiskey in your hand right now, too. So, um, yeah. well, based on that, I'd give you the chance to create three restaurants at one time. You are a mad crazy lady. <laughs> Oddly enough, I don't you? think I'm basing that on your statement. But. No, probably not. <laughs> so, how are you doing? <clears throat> um, that's a really broad question. <laughs> but, I mean, how are you doing it? Oh, God. Sweet when Jesus. are they opening? Let's talk about specifics. Their names, when they're opening, what their differences are. So, the first one to open is uh, going to be called Milton's at the Western Front. The Western Front Hotel is being uh, built right now in St. Paul, Virginia, which is about a mile away from the town I grew up in uh, called Castlewood. It wasn't a part of my initial plan. Uh, but being 
the sucker for sentimentality that I am and how protective and how important honoring, as I said, the stories and, and the heritage of, of, of Appalachia that, that we all come from. Mm-hmm. Being able to open up a, a restaurant literally in the town I grew up in I was, was something that I couldn't pass up, especially right. because it's it's something that really needs those opportunities. So I, I completely caved and was like, yes, I will do that. Okay, so um, that's one. The second one is going to be the flagship of the bunch, and that's uh, Shovel and Pick, uh, which will be in Russell, Virginia. Uh, we're uh, actually putting it in an old uh, flower factory there, the old Simply Grand Flower Factory. How which, many seats is that going to be? Um, Shovel and Pick is going to be about 50 seats altogether. Oh, so not using most of the factory then? No. Uh, so the other restaurant's going in the factory too. Oh. Yes. That'll be helpful for this you. This is how around. I am making it happen. <laughs> I'm putting two restaurants in the same building. Uh, where Shovel and Pick will be a lot of uh, a lot of that whole thought process of, of where, you know, what layer of the story can mm-hmm. I bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Shovel and Pick's going to be very, I want to say modernist. That's a scary word to a lot of people. But um, it's my interpretation of Appalachian food based off of my experience, which I, I think is, is mm-hmm. a, a true definition of, of how to add to the story. Mm-hmm. So being and that, that is by its nature modern. Yes. And, and being that I've worked in, in a lot of really, really more avant-garde, different, different, you know, kind of fine dining restaurants, whatever. I've seen a lot of different things, experienced a lot of different things and have a different view on the food than essentially the folks that came before me in doing this. In my family, I'm not saying chef-wise, but uh, in in that whole chain of a story, I've got a, a different take on it. So it'll it'll be a more much more modernist look at, at the ingredients of Appalachia and how to utilize them in different ways. And uh, then the second restaurant that'll be in the building, which will be the third to open, uh, will be called Simply Grand, which is kind of a twofold wordplay. Number one, as I said, the the building was a Simply Grand flower factory, but also that's how I look at Appalachian food. It's simple. But it's grand. It's 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 mm-hmm. this beauty and humility. Um, I hate it when people say humble humble Appalachian food, and I just I just did that myself. But it's it's that unassuming food that you you don't necessarily see it and go, oh my god, that's probably amazing. It's extremely bold flavor. So like Absolutely. raw onion, Absolutely. black pepper, cinnamon, <laughs> red hot, lots of vinegar stuff, vinegar. Yes. yes. So. Um, well, that's that's a little bit of work there to get all of that skosh. open. <laughs> Just a skosh. Well, I I can't wait. I'd drive. I can't. Either. I already drove five hours to come see you here, so I can drive five hours to come to Bristol. I'm trying to remember how. Actually, it's only four. From Charleston. Yeah. All right. We'll Believe see me, I that. make that drive. Okay. I've done it. I just didn't tell you because it was uh, it was actually at Polly's Island. That's rude. That's straight up rude. I know. Well, on that note, Travis, if people want to learn more about Chef Travis Milton and his lovely food, his interesting, thoughtful approach to life and music and eating, despite the fact that he has now publicly told me that he came into town and didn't call me, um, <laughs> you can go to thesouthernfork.com. We're going to have images of Travis so you can see what he looks like, so you can stalk him if you'd like. They're or... all going to be derogatory because she's mad at me now. <laughs> <laughs> 
We're also going to have some links to his new projects. So you can take a look at these towns that he is deciding to invest so much of his time and creativity in. So if you like what you hear, we have new ones of these every week. So please uh, click yes and subscribe to the southernfork.com as Travis Milton does as he drives back and I forth yes. from um, Bristol, Virginia to Polly's Island. It doesn't tell people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I guess it's a I'll forgive him since he's generally nice. We have drunk history in common. And I was hanging out with Bill Murray. Whatever. I'm, I'm whatever. sorry. Don't talk about this. I know. Okay. It's been great to talk with you. I like tacos. You do? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks so much for being here today. And thanks for making time during the festival when you're working. I'm really glad that I was able to con you into an excuse to hang out. You've been listening to The Southern Fork. I can't wait to bring you more culinary conversations. But in the meantime, I have one question. Are you going to eat all that?